The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort. Chapter 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick McAfee. The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort. Chapter 14a. We see conventionally. It is not only that we think and act and speak and dress alike because of our surrender to social attempt at entity, in which we are only supercellular. We see what it is proper that we should see. It is orthodox enough to say that a horse is not a horse to an infant any more than is an orange an orange to the unsophisticated. It's interesting to walk along a street sometimes and look at things and wonder what they'd look like if we haven't, hadn't been taught to see horses and trees and houses as horses and trees and houses. I think that to supersight, they are local stresses merging indistinguishably into one another in an all-inclusive nexus. I think that it would be credible enough to say that many times have Monstrator and Elvera and Azuria crossed telescopic fields of vision, and were not even seen, because it wouldn't be proper to see them. It wouldn't be respectable. And it wouldn't be respectful. It would be insulting to old bones to see them. It would bring on evil influences from the relics of St. Isaac to see them. But our data. Of vast worlds that are orbitless, or that are navigable, or that are adrift in interplanetary tides and currents, the data that we shall have of their approach in modern times within five or six miles of this Earth. But then their visits or approaches to other planets, or to other of the few regularized bodies that have surrendered to the attempted entity of this solar system as a whole. The question that we can't very well evade. Have these other worlds or superconstructions ever been seen by astronomers? I think there would not be much approximation to realness in taking refuge in the notion of astronomers who stare and squint and see only that which it is respectable and respectful to see. It is all very well to say that astronomers are hypnotics and that an astronomer looking at the moon is hypnotized by the moon, but our acceptance is that the bodies of this present expression often visit the moon or cross it or are held in temporary suspension near it then some of them must often have been within the diameter of an astronomer's hypnosis our general expression that upon the oceans of this earth there are regularized vessels but also that there are tramp vessels that upon the super ocean there are regularized planets but also that there are tramp worlds. That astronomers are like mercantile purists who would deny commercial vagabondage. Our acceptance is that vast celestial vagabonds have been excluded by astronomers, primarily because their irresponsibilities are an affront to the pure and the precise, or to attempted positivism, and secondarily because they have not been seen so very often. The planets steadily reflect the light of the sun, 
upon this uniformity a system that we call primary astronomy has been built up but now the subject matter of advanced astronomy is data of celestial phenomena that are sometimes light and sometimes dark varying like some of the satellites of Jupiter but with a wider range however light or dark they have been seen and reported so often that the only important reason for their exclusion is that they don't fit in with dark bodies that are probably external to our own solar system I have in the provincialism that no one can escape not much concern dark bodies afloat in outer space would have been damned a few years ago but now they're sanctioned by professor Barnard and if he says they're all right you may think of them without the fear of doing something wrong or ridiculous the close kinship we note so often between the evil and the absurd I suppose by the ridiculous I mean the froth of evil the dark companion of Algol for instance though that's a clear case of celestial miscegenation the purists or positivists admit that's so in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science 1915 394 professor Barnard writes of an object he calls it an object in Cephas his idea is that there are dark opaque bodies outside this solar system but in the astrophysical journal 1916 1 he modifies into regarding them as dark nebulae that's not so interesting we accept that Venus for instance has often been visited by other worlds or by superconstructions from which come cinders and coke and coal that sometimes these things have reflected light and have been seen from this earth by professional astronomers it will be noted that throughout this chapter our data are accursed Brahmins as by hypnosis and inertia we keep on and keep on saying just as a good many of the scientists of the 19th century kept on and kept on admitting the power of the system that preceded them or continuity would be smashed there's a big chance here for us to be instantaneously translated to the positive absolute Oh well. What I emphasize here is that our damned data are observations by astronomers of the highest standing, excommunicated by astronomers of similar standing, but backed up by the dominant spirit of their era, to which all minds had to equilibrate or be negligible, unheard, submerged. It would seem sometimes in this book as if our revolts were against the dogmatisms and pontifications of single scientists of eminence this is only a convenience because it seems necessary to personify if we look over philosophical transactions or the publications of the Royal Astronomical Society for instance we see that Herschel for instance was as powerless as any boy stargazer to enforce acceptance of any observation of his that did not harmonize with the system that was growing up as independently of him and all other astronomers as a phase in the development of an embryo compels all cells to take on appearances concordantly with the design and the predetermined progress and schedule of the whole visitors to Venus Evans ways of the planets p. 
page 140, that, in 1645, a body large enough to look like a satellite was seen near Venus. Four times in the first half of the 18th century, a similar observation was reported. The last report occurred in 1767. A large body has been seen seven times, according to Science Gossip, 1886-178, near Venus. At least one astronomer, Houzeau, accepted these observations and named the world planet superconstruction Nath. His views are mentioned in passing but without endorsement in the Transactions of the New York Academy, 5.249. Houzeau, or someone writing for the magazine section of a Sunday newspaper, outer darkness for both alike. A new satellite in this solar system might be a little disturbing, though the formulas of Laplace, which were considered final in his day, have survived the admittance of five or six hundred bodies not included in those formulas. A satellite to Venus might be a little disturbing, but would be explained. But a large body approaching a planet, staying a while, going away, coming back some other time, anchoring, as it were. Azuria is pretty bad, but Azuria is no worse than Nath. Astrophysical Journal, 1-127. A light-reflecting body or a bright spot near Mars, seen November 25, 1894, by Professor Pickering and others at the Lowell Observatory, above an illuminated part of Mars, self-luminous it would seem, thought to have been a cloud, but estimated to have been about 20 miles away from the planet. Luminous spot seen moving across the disk of Mercury in 1799 by Harding and Schroeter. Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, 38-338. In the first bulletin issued by the Lowell Observatory in 1903, Professor Lowell describes a body that was seen on the terminator of Mars, May 20, 1903. On May 27th, it was suspected, if still there, it had moved, we are told, about 300 miles, probably a dust cloud. Very conspicuous and brilliant spots seen on the disk of Mars, October and November 1911. Popular Astronomy, Volume 19, Number 10. So one of them accepted six or seven observations that were in agreement except that they could not be regularized upon a world, planet, satellite, and he gave it a name. He named it Nath. Monstrator and Elvera, and Azuria, and Super Romanimus. Or heresy and orthodoxy, and the oneness of all quasiness, and our ways and means and methods are the very same. Or, if we name things that may not be, we are not of lonely guilt in the nomenclature of absences. But now, Le Verrier and Vulcan. Le Verrier again. Or, to demonstrate the collapsibility of a froth, stick a pin in the largest bubble of it. Astronomy and Inflation. 
and by inflation we mean expansion of the attenuated. Or that the science of astronomy is a phantom film, distended with myth, stuff, but always our acceptance that it approximates higher to substantiality than did the system that preceded it. So Leverrier and the planet Vulcan. And we repeat, and it will do us small good to repeat, if you be of the masses that the astronomers have hypnotized, being themselves hypnotized, or they could not hypnotize others, or that the hypnotist's control is not the masterful power that, is, that it is popularly supposed to be, but only the transference of state from one hypnotic to another. If you be of the masses that the astronomers have hypnotized, you will not be able even to remember ten pages from here, and Leverrier and the planet Vulcan will have fallen from your mind like beans from a magnet, or like data of cold meteorites from the mind of a Thompson. Leverrier and the planet Vulcan. And much the good it will do us to repeat. But at least temporarily, we shall have an impression of a historic fiasco, such as, in our acceptance, could occur only in a quasi-existence. In 1859, Dr. Les Carbeaux, an amateur astronomer of Orgueil, France, announced that, upon March 26th of that year, he had seen a body of planetary size cross the sun. We are in a subject that is now as unholy to the present system as ever were its own subjects to the system that preceded it, or as ever were slanders against miracles to the preceding system. Nevertheless, few textbooks go so far as quite to disregard this tragedy. The method of the systematists is slightingly to give a few instances of the unholy and dispose of the few. If it were desirable to them to deny that there are mountains upon this earth, they would record a few observations upon some slight eminences near Orange, New Jersey, but say that commuters, though estimable persons in several ways, are likely to have their observations mixed. The textbooks casually mention a few of the supposed observations upon Vulcan and then pass on. Dr. Les Carbeaux wrote to Leverrier, who hastened to Orgueil. Because this announcement assimilated with his own calculations upon a planet between Mercury and the Sun. Because this solar system itself has never attained positiveness in the aspect of regularity, there are to Mercury, as there are to Neptune, phenomena irreconcilable with the formulas, or motions that betray influence by something else. We are told that Leverrier satisfied himself as to the substantial accuracy of the reported observation. The story of this investigation is told in Monthly Notices, 2098. It seems too bad to threaten the naive little thing with our rude sophistications, but it is amusingly of the ingenuousness of the age from which present dogmas have survived. L'Escarbot wrote to Leverrier. Leverrier hastened to Orgueil, but he was careful not to tell L'Escarbot who he was. 
went right in and subjected Dr. Lescarbot to a very severe cross-examination. Just the way you or I may feel at liberty to go into anybody's home and be severe with people. Pressing him hard step by step, just as anyone might go into someone else's house and press him hard, though unknown to the hard-pressed one. Not until he was satisfied did Le Verrier reveal his identity. I suppose Dr. Lescarbot expressed astonishment. I think there's something utopian about this. It's so unlike the standoffishness of New York life. Le Verrier gave the name Vulcan to the object that Dr. Lescarbot had reported. By the same means by which he is, even to this day, supposed, by the faithful, to have discovered Neptune, he had already announced the probable existence of an intra-mercurial body, or group of bodies. He had five observations, besides Les Garbeaux's, upon something that had been seen to cross the sun. In accordance with the mathematical hypnoses of his era, he studied these six transits. Out of them he computed elements giving Vulcan a period of about 20 days, or a formula for heliocentric longitude at any time. But he placed the time of best observation away up in 1877. But even so, or considering that he still had probably a good many years to live, it may strike one that he was a little rash. That is, if one has not gone very deep into the study of hypnoses, that, having discovered Neptune by a method which, in our acceptance, had no more to recommend it than had one equally well thought of methods of witch-finding, he should have taken such chances that if he was right as to Neptune, but should be wrong as to Vulcan, his average would be away below that of most fortune-tellers, who could scarcely hope to do business upon a 50% basis, all that the reasoning of a tyro in hypnoses. The date, March 22, 1877. The scientific world was up on its hind legs, nosing the sky. The thing had been done so authoritatively. Never a pope had said a thing with more of the seeming of finality. If six observations correlated, what more could be asked? The editor of Nature, a week before the predicted event, though cautious, said it is difficult to explain how six observers, unknown to one another, could have data that could be formulated if they were not related phenomena. In a way, at this point occurs the crisis of our whole book. Formulas are against us. But can astronomic formulas, backed up by observations in agreement, taken many years apart, calculated by a Leverrier, be as meaningless, in a positive sense, as all other quasi-things that we have encountered so far? The preparations they made before March 22, 1877. In England, the astronomer Royal made it the expectation of his life notified observers at Madras, Melbourne, Sydney, and New Zealand, and arranged with observers in Chile and the United States. M. Struve 
had prepared for observations in Siberia and Japan. March 22, 1877. Not absolutely hypocritically, I think it's pathetic myself. If anyone should doubt the sincerity of Le Verrier in this matter, we note whether it has meaning or not that a few months later he died. I think we'll take up Monstrator, though there's so much to this subject that we'll have to come back. According to the Annual Register, 9-120, upon the 9th of August, 1762, M. de Rostan of Basel, France, was taking altitudes of the sun at Lausanne. He saw a vast spindle-shaped body about three of the sun's digits in breadth and nine in length, advancing slowly across the disk of the sun, or at no more than half the velocity with which the ordinary solar spots move. It did not disappear until the 7th of September, when it reached the sun's limb. Because of the spindle-like form, I incline to think of a super zeppelin. But another observation, which seems to indicate that it was a world, is that though it was opaque and eclipsed the sun, it had around it a kind of nebulosity or atmosphere. A penumbra would ordinarily be a datum of a sunspot, but there are observations that indicate that this object was at a con considerable distance from the sun. It is recorded that another observer at Paris, watching the sun at this time, had not seen this object. But that M. Croste at Seoul, about 45 German leagues northward from Lausanne, had seen it, describing the same spindle form, but disagreeing a little as to breadth. Then comes the important point that he and M. de Rostan did not see it upon the same part of the sun. This, then, is parallax, and compounded with invisibility at Paris, is great parallax, or that, in the course of a month, in the summer of 1762, a large, opaque, spindle-shaped body traversed the disk of the sun, but at a great distance from the sun. The writer in the register says, in a word, we know of nothing to have recourse to in the heavens by which to explain this phenomenon. I suppose he was not a hopeless addict to explaining. Extraordinary. We fear he must have been a man of loose habits in some other respects. As to us, Monstrator. In the monthly notes of the Royal Astronomical Society, February 1877, Le Verrier, who never lost faith up to the last day, gives the six observations upon an unknown body of planetary size that he had formulated. Fritsch, October 10, 1802. Stark, October 9, 1819. De October 30th, 1839. Sidebottom, November 12th, 1849. L'Escarbeau, March 26th, 1859. Lumi, March 20th, 1862. 
If we weren't so accustomed to science in its essential aspect of disregard, we'd be mystified and impressed, like the editor of Nature, with the formulation of these data agreement of so many instances would seem incredible as a coincidence, but our acceptance is that, with just enough disregard, astronomers and fortune tellers can formulate anything, or we'd engage ourselves to formulate periodicities in the crowds in Broadway, say that every Wednesday morning, a tall man with one leg and a black eye, carrying a rubber plant, passes the Singer building at quarter past ten o'clock. Of course, it couldn't really be done unless such a man did have such periodicity. But if some Wednesday mornings it should be a small child lugging a barrel or a fat negress with a week's wash, by ordinary disregard that would be prediction good enough for the kind of quasi-existence we're in. So whether we accuse or whether we think that the word accuse overdignifies an attitude toward a quasi-astronomer or mere figment in a super-dream, our acceptance is that Le Verrier never did formulate observations. That he picked out observations that could be formulated. That of this type are all formulas. That if Le Verrier had not been himself helplessly hypnotized, or if he had had in him more than a tincture of realness, Never could he have been beguiled by such a quasi-process, but that he was hypnotized, and so extended or transferred his condition to others, that upon March 22, 1877, he had this earth bristling with telescopes, with the rigid and almost inanimate forms of astronomers behind them, and not a blessed thing of any unusuality was seen upon that day or succeeding days. But that the science of astronomy suffered the slightest in prestige? It couldn't. The spirit of 1877 was behind it. If, in an embryo, some cells should not live up to the phenomena of their era, the others will sustain the scheduled appearances. Not until an embryo enters the mammalian stage are cells of the reptilian stage false cells. It is our acceptance that there were many equally authentic reports upon large planetary bodies that had been seen near the sun, that, of many, Le Verrier picked out six, not then deciding that all the other observations related to still other large planetary bodies, but arbitrarily or hypnotically disregarding, or heroically disregarding, every one of them that to formulate at all he had to exclude falsely. The denouement killed him, I think. I'm not at all inclined to place him with the Greys and Hitchcocks and Simonses. I'm not, because though it was rather unsportsmanlike to put the date so far ahead, he did give a date, and he did stick to it with such a high approximation. I think Le Verrier was translated to the positive absolute the disregarded. Observation of July 26, 1819 by Gruthensen. But that was of two bodies that crossed the sun together. End of chapter 14a.
Recording by Patrick McAfee, Chicago, gis.depaul.edu, slash p. McAfee.